welcome to another episode of My Duke and I. Hello, Denise. Hello, Anita. Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. So, Anita, what are we talking about today? Well, today we certainly have a special guest that will be addressing the race issues that's taking place in Great Britain. And, um, Denise, you're going to do that interview. I think this interview will be quite informative um, as to what Megan is going through right now um, in Great Britain with the racism. And um, hopefully Dr. Alexander, which is our guest, will be able to shed a light on exactly what is taking place in Britain, where they are, and what they have to do. And in terms of the Commonwealth, I think hopefully you and Dr. Alexander will get into that conversation where the people from the Commonwealth knows exactly what is going on. So I'm really excited about it and um, it's just always nice to have a guest on. Okay, Denise, so take it away. We have a very special guest, Dr. Alexander, and I will allow Dr. Alexander to introduce himself and tell a little bit about his background. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Dr. Alexander and I reside in the UK at the moment. I'll tell you a little bit more about my situation here in the UK, but I'd like to start first of all in talking to you about my early um, years. Um, I was born in the UK um, in Fulham in 1957. My parents moved to Jamaica when I was approximately 10 years old, where I went to a state school and did the usual sort of things, you know, GCSEs, GCEs, I should say, actually, taking us back a bit, GCEs, and, uh, and, and attained a, a fairly decent education as a youngster. However, what is significant about my early childhood is that I was actually, um, as I said, born in the UK. However, my parents, were probably about the age of about eight or nine, found it difficult to get me into a school in this country, partly because I was classified as what was then called an ESN child, which meant educationally subnormal. Now, this is not something that people talk about very often, even in the UK, but it basically means that I was classified as having a below average learning ability. I was sent to see a psychiatrist two or three times a week, where I can certainly remember a very Freudian setup where I would lay on a chaise lounge chair. I'd be given lots of squares, and lots of circles and various other objects to place in order and then told um, then I would get a lollipop and told that I was a good boy if I did well. Um, ironically, my father, who was relatively uneducated man, uh, my, my mother was a nurse, um, decided around about that time that somehow something wasn't quite right. My father always wanted to own his own business and so he, um, having struggled to, I think was expelled from school by that age, or on the verge of being excluded, if I remember right. And my parents decided to move back to the to Jamaica so that I could get a decent education and we could all go to school and my parents could develop a business there. Um, what's interesting is that I went to state school there, I went to university, and I came back to the UK some time around about 1980. And what should be noted by that introductory story is that had my parents not moved back to the UK, uh, moved back to Jamaica, I probably would have had a below-par education, which probably would have meant that I would have been taught as someone who was incapable of functioning as an, in a normal way within society. So that sets the scene for much of my personal and political development in that the roots of that were that my early experiences of racism about how black children were discriminated and classified at that time. Because 
I never really understood that till I started to study later on in life. And um, there's a, a West Indian uh, novelist called Bernard Corn who wrote a book called How the West Indian Child is Made ESN in the British School System. And it wasn't until I picked that book up many, many years later in the early 80s that I actually began to make a clear connection with what had happened to me and my parents' move uh, to Jamaica and the impact that some of the decisions that were being made at that time about black children, the impact that this had on me. Wow. So, Dr. Alexander, that is quite an, a story. And now that you've been back in the UK for over a decade or more, or several decades, I was wondering, has anything changed since you were a child? Uh, if I'm honest, I would say there have been changes. Um, some positive changes and some changes that I think you know, mean that we still have a long way to go. I think the um, the, the context of racism is far different. When I first came back to the UK, it was quite common for people to scream obscenities to black people. We had um, stop and search on the street, which is primarily targeted at black young people in this country. Black children are being excluded from school at, a, at, at an almost alarming rate. Um, we had um, people uh, being denied opportunities here. It was pretty awful, particularly during the Thatcherite um, years. And it kind of set the seeds of what, what was to continue. I think that, and when I say something has changed, I think there's less of a kind of overt, overt behavior in terms of racist behavior. But I think what is very clear is that there is an undercurrent, an underbelly of how people react and discriminate in ways which are very, very different. And what I would say is far more sophisticated in their approach to race. So for argument's sake, nobody's going to call you um, the, uh, the n-word yeah. but, but it's very clear that some, it's very clear by all sorts of decisions which are made on an everyday basis that you are treated like one of those like one of those that n-word okay to give an example to give you an example we have, have situations here where you have um uh, people applying for jobs and we have many people from all over the world sometimes it's various surnames that don't match not traditionally British names now I happen to have a very traditional British name but you have um, many people who have surnames which are non-traditionally British and we actively have those people at times that have been proven that they've been discriminated from jobs not because you've actually got uh, somebody's interviewed you and decided whether or not you're able or capable but because certainly weeded out the foreigners in terms of references of name and culture. And that is the kind of bias that has been built into the system for a long, long time. It's actually quite sophisticated in terms of the way it works. Oh, exactly. So, so it's been hidden somewhat under the rug and camouflaged so that people cannot recognize the blatant racism that is happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's something that people struggle with. I think more increasingly people are beginning to become aware of it. Certainly the people who are impacted by it, uh, people of colour, are aware of it. And here you know, I say that many other people who are supporters of people of colour in this country that are aware of it too. But I think in terms of how the media perception of black people, the media reporting of black people, institutions in terms of how they seek to discriminate against black people, it is as rampant as it ever was at any time in our history in this country. Oh, wow. So, have you been personally targeted, Dr. Alexander? I wouldn't say I've been personally targeted, but I certainly have lots of experiences that lead me to feel 
uncomfortable about the way I'm treated through I mistake. I, I find as, as, as someone of colour, I turn up at a university and I can be, sometimes if the security don't know, know me, I'm denied access. Not in the way that my white colleagues are treated. My white colleagues can go into places and have free access within institutions or within certain places. I feel that there's an, a conscious or unconscious bias against me within this system. And that isn't that I have a chip on my shoulder. Um, I feel quite comfortable with who I am. I feel comfortable as a person. However, I am aware that even for those of us who might consider us to be, consider ourselves to be educationally privileged, privileged that there is discrimination at hand. Okay. Now, are there any groups um, over there, such as here in the States, we have the NAACP, uh, that, who's often the voice for many people of color? Is there, are there any groups in the UK that um, can advocate for people of color over there? In the, in the, in the, unlike the U.S., we don't have any particular groups. We have lots of small groups that will speak up at times. We have, you know, David Lammy, who's the MP, and, and others who will raise issues within Parliament, and we have councillors that will raise raise issues. And we sometimes, as there I said, black and white councillors and MPs that will raise issues. But we don't really have a strong campaigning or strong vocal point for those things. Um, often uh, things come up around flashpoints. There are times when there are flashpoints uh, that people will speak up because, for example, there's a real issue at the moment in the, in the country with issues around knife crime, and they wanted to bring in bring back in some measures which are stop and search, which actually means they stop pe people on the street. However, this stop and search is always traditionally only ever targeted black young people, okay. and so so people have actually started to speak out against that. Not about stop and search as it's in itself but about the, the fact that the focus of that is only on, often seems to be 90% of it on black young people. Okay, so it, it's, yeah, I remember in the U.S. Uh, years ago they had something similar, the stop and search. Uh, it was really in New York, and I think it's been somewhat outlawed now, but they, they've still found a way to continue to target, especially young black men, and they're the ones that's actually been thrown in prison oftentimes for no real reason. So I, I, I see a similar situation happening, or hopefully it will be averted there in the UK now. That's, yeah, that's, that's really something. So it's, it's sad that there is, um, that up till now there are no national, um, NAACP type group over there. I think, um, do, do you know if, if there are any plans in the making to create an organization like that? I, I, I don't know if there are any plans in the making, and there may well be groups out there that I don't know about, but certainly we don't have any strong, like the NAACP in America, we don't have any real strong groups that's a coalition that's clearly identified as picking up an agenda around challenging system and the status quo in relation to its approach to race and discrimination in this country. We, we don't have any large body that seems to communicate that. As I said, it's mainly been done through small groups of people, sometimes through the church occasionally, but 
very rarely, but mainly picked up in Parliament through MPs and picked up through concerned individuals, which tends to be okay, but it tends to personalise issues and become one that just feels like, you know, people just, oh, they've got a chip on their shoulder or, they're, they're, you know, they're angry, rather than actually seeing it as something which is systemic and actually part of a structured and organised approach here in terms of institutional racism and discrimination for people of colour. Okay, and so that that's basically how the British people have been able to get away with it for centuries. I'm hoping that now that the world is actually paying attention to the blatant racism in the UK, that hopefully these small groups uh, will come together to form a larger group, because I think it's so important, especially in the 21st century, that uh, people of color over there do have some sort of a representation on a national level. The other thing that I, I, I see that will eventually become a problem with Brexit, um, I call it the Brexit debacle that's about to happen, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the UK will be turning towards the Commonwealth countries for support, especially with trade and different things. And now with the Commonwealth quite aware of the blatant racism over there, where do you, you know, what do you think, how, or how do you think that, you know, that will be affected? I really, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure about that. I think the difficulty is that I don't think many people from the Commonwealth, um, I think um, this issue is, I wouldn't say it's relatively new. I think many people who live in the Commonwealth are, are aware from, from historical stories or things they've heard. But in terms of you talking about the, the Commonwealth as a trading bloc, I think it's, it's, it's obvious that Britain is going to have to seek to develop much more great partnerships with countries and, and blocks all over the world. But well, let me just make one thing clear. One of the interesting things, a few years ago, under the EU rules, um, there, I think it was St. Kitts and St. Nevis, and if someone correct me, I might be wrong, that and did, but was the uh, sole trade was that they, they traded in bananas. What was interesting is that they, um, that overnight, their bananas didn't, they, they, uh, the EU decided not to buy their bananas because they were the wrong shape. It's made headlines in this country as a bit of a joke. But the in irony of it, it wiped out the whole industry there oh, in wow. terms of this small island producing bananas. To, it just overnight wiped out their whole industry and their main source, their main economic, um, their main sources of revenue and, and, and um, uh, trade. So my, my thinking is that yes, UK will seek to develop greater links with those, the, those, the, the islands as they were um, in terms of the trading. But the irony is we don't really have a trading block within the Commonwealth. And that's something that I think as black people, uh, people of colour, we have to be more savvy about. We need to create a trading block as in like they have within Europe that negotiates on behalf of, of the, the islands there. Okay. So coming together. So rather than actually being able to negotiate individual arrangements with individual islands, we actually have something that resembles a trading block there that we can actually do something. So I think that that's where I think could, could be interesting to see what the developments are that take place around that. I think that's something that I would be encouraging many of the Commonwealth countries, and uh, not all of them are, dare I say, not all of them are black either, but um, 
but to, to encourage a trading bloc that can negotiate a position, not just with the UK, but with across Europe. Okay, yeah, because there are certainly 53 members of the Commonwealth countries now, and I think yeah. there may be a couple of other countries that's um, trying to trying to negotiate to become a part of the Commonwealth. And yes, you're absolutely right. I hope, um, in light of everything now that's um, coming to the surface, that the leaders of the Commonwealth will now sit down and really think about the, fu the future, especially the future of the young people who will eventually become lead leaders there. And I know this program, my Duke and I, I know there are many people in different Commonwealth countries that listen to this. And I would say on behalf of all people of color, please listen to Dr. Alexander because this is really serious. It's important. And I think, again, considering the colonial history of the United Kingdom, it would be really sad to see um, the UK just sort of a pick up where it left off before and continue to treat people of color with the same racist behavior that they've done for over a century now and mind you a good portion of the population in the UK they're from the Commonwealth countries yeah that's true you know that, yeah so, so so this is important and Again, asking you about the NAACP, I don't know if, if the people there, um, especially people of color from the Commonwealth, if, if they have um, thought about maybe organizing themselves to have a collective voice speak on, on, on their behalf, because I know many people that are suffering from the blatant racism and underbelly now, even some that was, um, some are from the Windrush, uh, population time. It's, it's, it, it, I think it's important that they come together and try to address some of these problems. I think you're right, but I think one of the difficulties is that the NACCP in, America, NACCP in America has evolved out of the civil rights struggle and the civil rights movement, and I think therein lies different. We've not had that kind of movement in this country, and I think if you look at the history of the NACCP, that's where it was born out of the need to have a voice and a collective voice for black people in America. We've never had that in that way here, so we've never had anything that kind of uniforms us collectively. As I said, we've had times when there have been things that have happened. We've had um, riots in this country even, and we've had different parts of the country come together to speak about the riots or what's happening, discrimination in particular areas. But we don't have a body of people and a group that is identified as clearly having a voice that represents people of color across um, Britain. And I do think that that is something that we we, we really do need to look at at some point in the future. Yes. So immediately, actually, dare I say, in the future, immediately. Yeah, immediately, yeah, because therein lies the problem. There's a whole generation of young people that's there now. They're British citizens, but they have no real voice. And, yeah, that's definitely a problem, and hopefully someone will step up to the plate. Maybe one of these MPs can step up to the plate and begin to organize, especially the youth, um, who will be the future adults of tomorrow and help them to get organized and 
have some representation because after all the UK is no longer uh, all white country it is a it's 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 a mixed country absolutely but i want to just make one thing clear if you look at the way the NAC the NACCP in america has has has, has evolved you still have like us equal or equal amounts of racism and discrimination which is taking place currently and has taken place historically and so it's not a panacea so for me i want to make it quite clear that i don't actually think that just by having a voice i think it's important that we have a collective voice a uniform voice that can speak with one voice or as near as damage on behalf of, of, of people of color black people in this country but i think it's very different we need to be careful that we don't just lumber such a group with the responsibility for dealing with all the ills of society because as we've seen in America as we've seen other places around the world it's just having that alone doesn't necessarily automatically bring about change change is also too painful and it's and there is struggle yeah real serious struggles to have yeah to have. absolutely the only difference is in America when blatant racism like that happens in America people are able to call it out they don't try to sugarcoat it or sweep it under the rug for instance the leader of America has been saying a lot of awful racist things and the people here are not intimidated or feel afraid to speak out against it and i think in a society when you're able to openly speak out against some of the ills that's a part of i guess the healing process and that's a part of um that can be the beginning of addressing the problems and i think yeah and and i think over the years um that is what has happened to america yes america has still has a very long way to go and with the current leader it seems as if a lot of things have been um it have taken a a, a step step backwards 50 step backwards but we also we're also reminded that America did elect its first black president and hopefully there will be many more to come there's still a lot of issues that 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 needs to be addressed um the clock in some ways being rolled back but by, by the current leader but hopefully that won't be the norm and um, i know many people are speaking out now and they refuse to accept that as the norm so in light of that i think um the uk still has to get to that point where people of color black people are not afraid to speak out against, about the racism that's that's happening not just for themselves but within the within the society and feel ostracized because they've um voiced voiced their opinion so i guess in that respect that's one of the big difference between racism in the uk and racism in america over here we can openly speak about it in the uk people seem to be afraid um to even mention uh the word am i correct um I, i don't think that i don't think that's entirely true but i do think you're right i do think people are far more um reserved about speaking that's also too partly about british culture but it's also too that people do seem to almost 
you know, not want to talk about it. And so it doesn't mean that people don't see it and people aren't aware. But I think that sometimes you have to empower people to have a voice. Right. That's quite important that people feel empowered and emboldened to speak up about ills and wrongs uh, at all levels of society. So I think you're right. Um, but I, I don't think it's a, it's a I don't think that people just don't talk. I think, a, I think there's a kind of reluctance to really want to acknowledge um, certain things are going on at times. Okay, okay. But certainly within the black community, it's talked about, I can assure you that. Yeah. I can assure you of that. Okay, yeah. In the, yeah um, but... I guess when I speak about it, I meant openly in public, whether to Parliament or the, the government, for lack of a better term. Um, it's making those political connections that you have the, the links, and the, the, traditionally the links here have been our politicians. Okay. That, that traditionally the route in. So you have people like your David Lammy and others who will speak up on behalf of black people and raise issues of concern within Parliament. He's not the only one. Um, Diane Abbott and there are other uh, parliamentarians that will do those things occasionally, but there's a, it's a wide agenda. And again, as much as it's important to have those people speaking on our behalf, we should labour them uh, with the responsibility of them being the sole voice. Right. I think the, the point you raised earlier on about having, um, having um, a collective voice, a uniform voice outside of that kind of parliamentarian parliamentary system is important because the other thing here too is that those people not only represent black people in their communities, they represent white 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 members too of their communities. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's 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 a really good point. Well, I I, I hope that this is the beginning of um a conversation over there. And I know a lot of People of color over there can pay attention to what's going on in America and perhaps learn some lessons from everything that's, that's going on here. While America still has a long way to go, I think um, some of the experiences that black America have gone through will certainly um, teach a lot of people how to avoid some of the pitfalls and maybe how to move forward in in, in this situation. I hope so too. Yeah. I hope so too. Well, um, is there anything else? Uh, well, I'll, I'll ask you one more thing um, before I let you go, Dr. Alexander. I know your time is very busy. Is uh, are there any lessons that you um, that the people, especially the Commonwealth countries, where they're people of color. Are there any lessons that you think that they can take from this or learn from, from what's going on now that could maybe help the 35 and under population? No, I said, are there any lessons that the Commonwealth countries, that at least 95% people of color can learn from what's going on in the UK at this time as far as organizing themselves to well, I think there's two things the first one is that they recognize that Britain is not a just a panacea of greatness and uh, one of the things the myths that people are taught in the Caribbean or understand in terms of Commonwealth countries is that somehow 
that. What does it, I said, Commonwealth is what? Commonwealth, as I said, wider than just the Caribbean. But people buy into this myth that, that Britain is just a place paved with gold and honey. It, you know, living in this society is a struggle. And sometimes not to kind of set the westernized cultures like Britain up as a kind of like utopia. It is hard to live here. It's hard to reside here. It doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities. But to also recognize that your land your homeland to offer opportunities too and to find ways to be creative um, economically um, and, and to evolve social practices which are inclusive which ensure that the, you know, uh, the countries of the Commonwealth actually survive and survive in a way that's equitable that people are included no matter what social or economic strata they happen to fall within. So I think that's an important one. The, 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 the second one is that collectivity for all of the Commonwealth that coming together is something that I can remember during I think it was about 19 early 50s when I think they had a I can't remember I'll have to come back on again I should I'll get my facts together but okay. they did have a, a Jamaica and a number of other islands sought to come up with a uh, uh, just before Jamaica independence come up with a trading block for the Caribbean which didn't for whatever reason um, didn't quite work it fell apart early days but I think in ensuring that we have a way of collectively holding together and giving us strength in terms of how we train uh, in terms of creating those trading blocks in terms of creating opportunities for people to have um, to explore, exploit and explore opportunities from the Caribbean. So if you're in the Caribbean and you see you're manufacturing chairs, just as an example, and you, you're looking for a market for your chairs, rather than just trying to sell your chairs individually to some country in Britain or Europe, why not actually have a trading block which can negotiate a proper trading deal on your behalf, um, a network of production and system that means that it's systematic and long-term. And I think that's the kind of lesson that I think we need to learn overall. Absolutely. I think um, China has been uh, successfully done that. And I think there's at least um, one or two African um, countries that's currently in the process of doing that for local markets. So that's absolutely um, a great point, a very important point. And I hope that... Um, Next year, I think it's 2020, when all of the Commonwealth uh, leaders will get together at a conference in Rwanda, that they will be able to address some of these problems and, as you say, do come up with uh, a, a, some sort of a trade block where they're negotiating different um, things so that the people of their countries are not being taken advantage of and they're given their rightful place in, you know, on the world stage and in the world market. That's a really excellent, excellent point. Okay, yeah. thank you. So, and I hope, I hope we get a chance to come on again and maybe ask you a few more ideas. Yes, Dr. Alexander, this has been a pleasure speaking to you, and I know you're a busy man. I thank you so very much for taking time out of your schedule to speak to our listeners out there on My Duke and I. And on that note, I will say again, thank you and adieu to all of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you.